Open to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Uh, we're going to be looking there at the parable of the talents. Now, um, for those that have been tracking with us the last couple of months, we're coming to the end. Some of you might be saying amen or not. We're coming to the end of our study on Jesus' parables. Now, let me just say, we haven't studied all of the parables. Um, there are many more parables we could have included, but we've looked at groups of parables that have been organized around certain themes. Uh, those themes being the kingdom of God. We've looked at parables of lostness, what it means to be separated from God and that God pursues us. We've looked at parables of discipleship, what it means to follow Christ as a disciple. And the last few we've looked at are what I've just called parables of responsibility. Responsibilities that we've been given as gospel people. The responsibility to forgive as we have been forgiven. We don't, we don't, have, the obli- we don't, have, um, we don't have the right to withhold forgiveness from anyone if we have received it. And the responsibility last week, as we looked at the parable of the rich young fool, the responsibility towards God of being good stewards of our plans and our possessions. Now, in Matthew 25, we're looking at the parable of the talents. Now, let me say a few words about this as a way of introduction. This parable in Matthew 25 appears at the end of Jesus' final teaching discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is about to be arrested. He is about to be tried and crucified. And here he ends his public teaching ministry with three parables that share a common theme of responsibility, of the responsibilities we have as we wait on Jesus' return in the future. Jesus has been telling his disciples up until this point that I'm going to be taken away from you. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and to the leading Jews. I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die. They're going to, take, they're going to strike the shepherd, and the sheep are going to be scattered. It's going to happen. So, Jesus is teaching them he's going to be taken away, but the kingdom of God will continue to spread and increase, that they still have a mission to accomplish. The Spirit will be given, and the church will will go forth, but our Lord will be taken away. And we must be found faithful doing His work as we await His return. Now, the three parables that Jesus teaches at the end of His teaching discourse are the parable of the ten virgins. We're going to read that in just a second, though I'm not going to preach about it. Where five are wise and five are foolish. And then Jesus teaches, secondly, the parable of the talents. Where two are wise and one is foolish. And then Jesus ends Matthew 25 with the parable of the sheep and the goats who will stand before Christ at the final judgment when he returns. And we looked at that parable a couple weeks ago. Now, having said all that, I know y'all, I'm the king of introductions by the way, I know that. I I give y'all so much information, but I want you to know your Bibles. That's the point. I want you to know the context of the scriptures because without the context you don't really know your Bible okay so having said all that our parable today is the parable of the talents and I want to add right here this is one of the most difficult parables of Jesus in fact according to historical scholars it is one of the least 
quoted and preached parables in all of Christian history. Just think about that for a second. All the early church fathers, this wasn't their go-to parable. This wasn't it. All right? All throughout church history, this, is, this parable has been skipped over because of a lot of the difficulties. Okay? Now, um, scholars are split about a lot of things in this parable. They're split on who is Jesus addressing. Is he addressing his disciples or the Pharisees? Because that makes a huge difference on interpretation. There's the question on the emphasis of a judgment of works. And that always bothers those of us who cherish the gospel of grace. That makes us uneasy. Um, and then there's a question of what the talent represents. You know, is it, is, does it represent the kingdom? Um, is, the, is it the talent, the gospel that we've been given? Is it a reference to our spiritual gifts? Or do all of our possessions and abilities? Or is it all of those things taken together? So while there are difficulties, what I want to do is I want to read the text and then point out just a couple of principles that I think are clear concerning our responsibility, our responsibilities as disciples in regards to this parable. So let's read Matthew 25. And I'm going to begin in verse 1 so you can get the context of, of the parables here. Jesus says this, says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish, for the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the, to the one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And, and, he, and he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will, set, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
He also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to point out three things here as we walk through this together. Number one, notice here, here's here's the first principle we can learn. The master assigns each of us our responsibilities in his kingdom. That's what the master does. Look there at verse 14, that's what it says. Notice, um, let let me give you here a few things about this. This is a parable of comparison. Notice that Jesus says there in verse 14, it will be like a man who went away on a journey. Now that it, it will be, refers back to verse 1 where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like this. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like or compared to a master who was going away on a journey and he, look what it says in the text, called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So in the kingdom of God, it's the master who assigns each of us responsibilities and property. That's what he does. Notice that it's his property. All of it belongs to him, and it is his prerogative to assign as he pleases. So hear this, if we're in this room and we say we are followers of Jesus, we have to acknowledge at the beginning that all that we have is the master's property. All that we have. You and I don't actually own a single thing that we have. We are all stewards. Stewards of our minds, stewards of our bodies, stewards of our souls, and stewards of our possessions. And all of that, all of those things, ultimately are in relation to God's kingdom and God's eternal purposes. Notice next what Jesus says in verse 15. He says that he assigns these responsibilities, his property, to each of us according to our abilities. You can underline that. He assigned to each of his servants according to their abilities. He gave one servant five, another servant two, and the third servant won. That assignment, again, was according to their abilities. This means that the master makes us responsible according to what he knows about our abilities. I am not responsible for that for for which I am not able. I'm not responsible for that for which I am not able. The problem comes when we start assuming what we are able, though, or unable to do. That's where the problem comes in. One of the greatest deceptions of the enemy in our spiritual lives and in Christ's kingdom, one of the greatest deceptions that you and I face 
is that the enemy will convince you what you are able or unable to do. And you will use that as an excuse. But I'm going to stop there because I want to speak about that later. And that's exactly what happens in this parable. Each one is assigned according to their abilities. So each of the servants are given a certain number of talents. Now the word talent here, if you look at the footnotes in your Bible, you can see probably a number and you can go down to the bottom. Uh, The word talent was a measurement of money. It, It was a measurement of somewhere between 60 and 90 pounds of either gold or silver. Now depending on the metal, one talent equaled 6,000 days wages or about 20 years worth of work. Depending on the life expectancy then, which was much less than it was now, this was basically a lifetime's worth of work. So he gave the first two servants incredible sums of money. Incredible sums of money. Okay? Now, this talent, again, you need to know this, this is not how we use the word today when we talk to a, about a talented singer or a talented baseball player or a brilliant, talented mind, okay? This talent is an investment in the servant, and the master expects a return on that investment. Now, remember, Jesus assigns as he pleases. I don't get to complain. You don't get to complain about what we have or don't have as compared to what others have or don't have. Because it is the master who assigns to each. The one with five can't complain that he has too much. And the servant with one cannot complain that he was given too little. And in the end, let me just say this with crystal clear clarity. In the end, many of us will wish that we had been entrusted with much less for what we are responsible with. In the end, we will not complain that we didn't have, we didn't have more. We will say, why did you entrust me with so much? So, we don't get to complain. Now, again, the principle here, there is the principle here that the greater the investment, the greater the expectation of the master. The greater the investment, the greater the expectation of the master. Jesus makes that point near the end of this parable, and he also makes it in Luke 12 when he says, Everyone to whom much was given... Of him much will be required. And him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So that's the principle here. Now again, I don't know exactly what to make of the talents. I don't know what those represent. So let me just say a few things that I know God has given us and expects from us. Here's a few things that the New Testament makes abundantly clear. First, all of us have been entrusted with the gospel. You have been entrusted with the gospel, and you are expected to make that known and make investments of that with others. Second, he has given you the Holy Spirit, by which he has filled you and empowered you for the mission for which Christ has given you. That Holy Spirit is a deposit, an investment in which God has made. Third, he has given all of us spiritual gifts that he has commanded us to use for the sake of his kingdom. And beyond that, he's given us our minds, our bodies, and our possessions, all for his glory and purposes. And so in that sense, God has invested himself 
in us for the sake of accomplishing his purposes. So that's point number one. The master assigns each of us responsibilities in his kingdom. All of us in here, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has assigned responsibilities for which you will be expected to answer, which is point number two. Secondly, the master will return to settle accounts. The second clear teaching of this text is that the master will return to settle accounts. Look at verse 19. It says, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Now remember in the context of Matthew 25, Jesus is about to depart. He's about to be arrested, tried, and crucified. He's preparing his disciples for the future. And he's told them that the kingdom belongs to them and to those that would believe the gospel through their preaching and ministry. And Jesus is reminding him that though he's going away, though you won't see him, he will return to settle accounts. And they must be found doing his will. And I want you to notice as you go through this text that the settling of accounts will be based on what God has assigned to each of us. Each servant had to settle based on what they had received. The master did not hold them accountable for what the other had done. Notice that this settling had no relation between the three servants, only that they were all expected to answer to the master. So in that sense, they didn't get to blame each other for what they did or did not do. So I don't get to blame anyone else for my responsibilities. You don't get to blame God. You don't get to blame bad preaching. You don't get to blame your spiritual condition on bad preaching. Ha, 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 ha. You don't get to blame it on bad Sunday school teachers. You don't get to blame it on a neighbor who is a hypocrite. You don't get to blame it on anyone else. On the day you stand before Jesus, you don't get to give an account in relation to anyone else. Because you are responsible to the master. And he's settling accounts not with them in regards to you, but with you in regards to him. Okay? So you don't get to blame anybody. There will be no excuse that could be made that I shouldn't have been responsible for what I had been given. Again, God isn't holding them accountable for what they could not do. He holds them accountable according to what he has given them. Now, another way to say this, again, that he would return to settle accounts, is that there will be a day of judgment where all of us will be called to account. And I want to say this is a common theme among Jesus' parables. And if Jesus speaks about it once, it's incredibly, it's incredibly important. But if he speaks about it frequently, you had better pay attention. And just as assuredly as Jesus died and rose again and ascended, he will surely, assuredly come and fulfill his word and settle accounts. As R.G. Lee famously said, there is payday someday. Might not be today, but it's someday. Now, when you stop, I want you to stop for a second. When you stop and think about eternity, or stop and listen to what others say about it, what I hear all the time, and this is one of the issues in this text, that judgment day is coming, and some will hear, well done, and some will hear, depart from me. The predominant thought in our culture is that the afterlife can only be better. 
The afterlife can only be better. Or at, at worst, it's just a continuation of life as we know it. Just think of all the country songs that talk about drinking with your friends, taking your truck, mudding, playing football in the afterlife. It just has to be a continuation of what life is here. It might be a little better, but it's not going to be any worse, right? Heaven might not be better than life here, but it has to be just as good. And they think, most of our culture thinks, that the only thing necessary to experience this just as good afterlife is to die. That as long as you die, you get to go to some just as good afterlife. Now, R.C. Sproul called this kind of thinking justification by death. Justification by death. That I'm saved only because I die. I want you to think about that for a second. Protestants, which we are Protestants, Protestants and Catholics have argued over centuries about justification. Protestants argue that we're justified or saved by faith apart from works. And we believe that we believe in a faith that works. Faith is the root that produces the fruit of salvation. And Catholics have argued that we're justified by faith plus our works. That faith and works synergistically work together to save us. But I don't want to talk about that. Here's the issue. Most folks you talk with actually believe in justification by death. That's what they believe. As long as we die, we will be saved. But it never seems to come into anyone's mind that the afterlife could actually be far worse for some people. Jesus wants us to understand that judgment is coming, all accounts will be settled, and in fact, it won't be better for everybody. He says at the end of this, throw this worthless servant out, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now remember, again, our parables don't give us complete pictures they're limited analogies and illustrations. So, I don't want to use this parable to discredit what Jesus has already said throughout all the Gospels, which is this. Here's the Gospel truth of this. Though judgment is coming, and we must all give an account, all those who repent and believe the Gospel will have their sins forgiven and experience eternal life. They will be given new hearts to know and love and obey Jesus. And the judgment they deserve will be laid on Christ instead. And the works that they now do flow out of, a, out of a heart and out of a life that demonstrates the transforming power of the gospel. If the gospel does not transform your life, you have not experienced the New Testament gospel. That is the truth of the matter. And that brings me to my third point. So number one, the master assigns each of us our responsibilities. Second, the master will return to settle accounts. And third, the master expects faithfulness and fruitfulness from his servants. This is what Jesus expects. You see this in the rest of the parable. The master calls these three servants to account and renders his judgment. Two are wise and are rewarded, and they enter the master's presence with joy. And one is judged and enters judgment. So what's the difference? What's the difference between the first two and the third one? The issue is that we must use what we've been invested with and entrusted with for the master's purposes. The issue is the use of that which we have been given. 
Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. You want to write this down probably. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. That means they don't have all the same gifts and talents. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Notice that they're accountable to use what they've been given. You have to use the gifts that you have been given for Christ's purposes. Paul tells Timothy, using an illustration of household products, he says this, Now in a great house, there are, are there not vessels of gold and silver, but also some of wood and clay, for honorable use and some for dishonorable use? Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master, and ready for every good work. We are responsible to use what we've been given. This parable reminds us that in God's economy, in God's economy of the kingdom, the more we use what we've been given, the more you will grow and experience the fruitfulness God intends for us. The more you use what you've been given for God's purposes, the more fruitfulness you can expect. In the same way, the same principle applies in a lot of our lives. Listen, the more push-ups you do, the more push-ups you can do. That's just the way it is. The more miles you run, the more miles you can run. If you sit on your duff, what happens is called muscle atrophy. And so you can have spiritual atrophy. You have to use what God has given you. That's what the point is. This is the connection you have to make here in this text. Faithfulness and fruitfulness go hand in hand in God's kingdom. You cannot separate them. Now here's the point. We tend to think, right, both of these first two servants, what do they hear from the master? Well done, good and faithful servant. What we tend to think is that we are faithful to Jesus if we simply keep ourselves from gross sins, and that's a good idea, and we go to church, that's a good idea, and if we tithe a little, that's a good idea. You might want to call that faithfulness, but that isn't faithfulness according to Jesus' standards here. The two wise servants in this text are given talents, and they take them, and they are fruitful. They're not simply faithful, they're fruitful, right? Jesus calls what they did faithfulness. That their fruitfulness is faithfulness. Now, the second guy, he's condemned for being a wicked, notice what he says, he, you wicked and slothful servant. You didn't do anything, right? And the issue isn't that he wasn't faithful, you might say that, but he wasn't fruitful. Now, why do I say that? He didn't lose the talents. He didn't lose them. He still had them. 
And what does he do? He returns them to the master. He actually says, take what is yours. So you can say he wasn't completely unfaithful. He didn't lose it. You know, he, he didn't do that. He just wasn't fruitful. He didn't use it for the master's purposes. Instead of the minimum of investing it in the bank, that's where all the bankers say amen, instead of investing it minimally in the bank, he lazily did nothing besides bury it in the ground. The issue is he didn't use it. Now listen, the issue is fruitfulness. And Paul uses this language all throughout his ministry. He tells the Romans that I want to come to see you so that I may reap a harvest from among you and from among the Gentiles. Paul tells the Colossians that the gospel is producing fruit among them as it is everywhere else in the world. That there should be fruitfulness in our lives. Now as I conclude, I want to leave you with this. The issue through this text is the use of what God has given us. He expects faithfulness and fruitfulness. So let me just put this back in the context of wisdom and folly from among the the ten virgins and these servants. Those who are wise, if this is you, those who are wise will prepare to meet Jesus and give an account. Those of us who are wise will do that. If you want to be foolish, you be foolish. I won't give an account for your foolishness. And you won't give an account for the other people's wisdom. Those who are wise will prepare to meet Jesus. And you will want to hear on that day, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Jesus isn't going to say, Well done, good and faithful banker, surgeon, teacher, lawyer, preacher, deacon, baseball player, basketball player, anything else. The wise who are prepared to meet Jesus will hear good and faithful servant. Because that is what we are. Servants all. Now I want to end this way. Did you notice that there was no person in this parable who tried to use their talent and failed? Just think about that for a second. I know all of us worry about how we use our gifts and what are the effects of using our gifts. Not a single person who uses them fails. Not a single person does. There are only two options here. You either use your talent and experience fruitfulness, or you bury it and be judged. That's the only two options Jesus gives us. And I've waited to the end to make this point, and here it is. There will be no excuse on that day the master returns to settle accounts that will satisfy if we do not discharge our responsibilities. Your human bosses don't accept excuses. We don't accept excuses from our children. We don't accept excuses from our elected officials and those leading us. So why in the world would we imagine that God will accept any excuse on that day? He's not like us. There will be none that will suffice. So this parable is a warning It is a warning that when Christ returns, and we do not know what that will be, we do not know the day or the hour, we better be prepared to meet him. Don't be foolish, be wise. And the first step of wisdom is coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. Because that is the only hope you will have on that day when you come to settle before Jesus. That Lord Jesus, you know everything about me and everything I have has been yours. And I've sought to let you use me for your kingdom according to your purposes. All I have 
is yours. This morning, I want to have a time of invitation. I'm going to pray, and then we will move that way. Father, we ask that today that you would speak to our hearts. That, Lord Jesus, you would convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, because that's what your Spirit does. And, Father, we would hear on that day we stand before you, not because of anything we have done, because all of our works are the fruit of grace. Father, we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that will be because of what Jesus has wrought in our lives, how he has changed our hearts and our minds to live for his kingdom and purposes. So, Father, may we not squander, may we not hide, may we not sidestep, may we not wait to a different season, but may we employ all that we have been given for Christ and his kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.